0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Well, with the House and Senate out of town this week, it was a relatively quiet week in Washington, but there was still a lot of action, especially on the political front, with Donald Trump right in the middle of all of it. On Trump's advice, former White House advisor Steve Bannon refused to obey a subpoena from the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection, and according to committee chairman Benny Thompson, will now face criminal charges for refusing. Donald Trump, meanwhile, is encouraging Republicans not to vote in the 2022 midterms until everybody agrees that he and not Joe Biden was the big winner in the last election. The Virginia governor's race remains a real nail biter, with former Governor Terry McAuliffe holding a slim lead over Republican challenger Glenn Youngkin, who is trying to juggle keeping some distance from Donald Trump while welcoming his endorsement. And get this, in his new book, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows claims that he and Trump together saved the nation from the brink of chaos instead of the other way around. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, here to put it all in perspective for us today's panel, Amanda Becker, Washington Correspondent for 19th News. Hello, Amanda.
2: Good morning.
1: Welcome back. Phil Bump. Philip Bump, National Correspondent for The Washington Post. Uh, First appearance on our roundtable. Hello, Philip. morning, sir. And Sudeep Reddy, managing editor for Politico. Welcome back, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. Uh, So let's start with uh, the big news yesterday. Steve Bannon, they had a hearing at the House uh, online. Steve Bannon was supposed to testify. Of course, he did not show up. And Chairman Penny Thompson says on Tuesday they're going to meet and vote on criminal charges against him. Sadiq, we've heard this before, people refusing to testify, refusing to show up. Uh, is this really going to happen?
3: This is all part of the, the, the playbook for Steve Bannon. He's going he's gonna, to uh, sow chaos, uh, have democratic institutions collapse on themselves. That's, that's been part of the, the, the approach all along. And uh, certainly Steve Bannon is not going to become a productive witness Uh, For this committee, Uh, the real question is whether he ends up in in some kind of path toward prosecution, uh, which, of course, will then make him uh, a rallying cry for for the January 6th uh, uh, supporters uh, of of the the riot and the coup. And so that's that's where we're headed with all of this. Uh, But the Democrats do not really have much of a choice here if they want to at least attempt to do a proper investigation.
1: Uh, but Philip, doesn't it all depend on Merrick Garland? Um, you know, the Congress is not uh, a law enforcement agency. If they want to file criminal charges, then somebody's going to have to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, not not to nitpick unnecessarily, but technically, Congress actually has the power to to hold people in contempt themselves, and to and, to, and there are enforcement mechanisms which, which haven't really been used. This is something that was. A, a hot topic of conversation during the initial investigations into Trump during his administration. But yeah, I mean this is something that that traditionally gets dropped off at the desk of, of DOJ. Uh, and, you know, it seems pretty likely that the Department of Justice, obviously not being run by William Barr, is going to be uh willing to try and be helpful here, but you know, to to the point that was just made. There's not really a lot of power that you have over making someone talk if they really don't want to and if they're more than willing to become a political martyr, which obviously Steve Bannon is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Amanda, isn't the, the the target here really not Steve Bannon, but Donald Trump himself? I mean, it's Bannon said, I mean, Trump <laughs> advised Bannon and Mark Meadows and others not to testify, not to obey the subpoena. Steve Bannon says, I'm not going to talk unless they work something out with Donald Trump. So the real target here is not Bannon, but Trump, isn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, the former president is certainly calling the shots to a certain extent. Um, but if if Bannon is willing to to pay the price in the meantime, I guess, uh, you know this will fall on him, and and maybe um, one of the others. No, I have always heard actually there's a rumor um, that there's a jail in the bottom of the Capitol. Have never been <laughs> able to confirm this myself, but maybe somebody else has. Um, but I forget when that came up in like a former oversight hearing that uh, allegedly there is a jail somewhere in the Capitol.
0: Um, I actually know the answer to that one because this is something that we poke around a lot about. There is a little space in the Capitol which is like walled off with bars. It's not technically a jail, and I don't think it's been used for that purpose. But this is, yeah, there's if, if you Google it, there there are news stories about it and a picture of this very jail-like looking thing. Uh, but you know, there 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 is a power that Congress has to to otherwise try and try and punish people. Well, the image
1: of Steve Bannon in the jail, in in the basement of the Capitol, uh, I find intriguing for sure. Well, Sadiq, back to Merrick Garland for a second. There are, um, there's a a big current in the legal community of dissatisfaction, at least the progressive legal community, people that I've talked to, people I've interviewed, uh, uh, dissatisfaction over Merrick Garland, that he so far has not taken any action toward holding Donald Trump Criminally or legally responsible for the January sixth insurrection? No special prosecutor, no no investigation, no charges filed. Is this? How do you read this? Uh, is this the Biden administration just not wanting to look like they're going after a former president?
3: Yeah, this has been part of the the issue really for the last year with with President Biden himself since he was President Elect Biden uh, and and leading into this moment of. Of uh, trying to determine how much do they want to uh, essentially make this all about Trump, and that's obviously what uh, the former president would like—is to make it all about him and have his name come up uh, in every story, in every moment, in every way, and have uh, his many, many millions of of supporters feel like this is a war on Trump. And so that's part of the the caution here from the Biden administration: is how much do they play into that and uh, allow? Uh, allow the Trump show to go forward because that's, that's in many ways the, the cause of, of the, the underlying problems, the, the original uh, error here that can be compounded in so many ways heading uh, not just through 2022 but into 2024.
1: So if Donald Trump uh, has the ability to confound Democrats, which he clearly does, he also has the ability to confound his fellow Republicans on his website a couple of days ago Donald Trump issued a statement, uh, quote, if we don't solve the presidential election fraud of 2020, which we have conclusively documented, Republicans will not be voting in 2022 or 2024. Amanda, what the hell?
2: I mean, that sounds like a best-case scenario for Democrats, right? Um, (laughs) I guess. If they all stay home, then we know who wins all those races. Um, You know, the former president puts out a lot of statements. Um, I get multiple a day most days. Uh, I do not see any uh, nationwide... you know, I don't see that coming to fruition nationwide, that Republicans will just stay home in 2022 and 24 if he is not declared the winner of 2020, um, which some of his own top aides have said he didn't win.
1: Uh, well, Philip, at the very, at the worst, right, or at the best, I guess, this certainly muddles the message for Republicans in, in, in the mid, for the midterms.
0: Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I'm sort of an outlier uh, view on this. Uh My my view is that the the fundamental question for Republicans in 2022 – uh, is whether or not Trump voters, people who were activated in 2016, not in 2018, but again in 2020, actually come out to vote. I think that's the real bet that Glenn Youngkin is making in his race in Virginia. Can he actually turn those people out? That's why he's doing all these little you know, things on the side to sort of appeal to them and try to make sure that they are energized to come out to vote. And I think fundamentally what Trump is saying here is, you know, I think it's partly delusional that he thinks he has that kind of sway, but I think it's also partly you know, the kind of CYA thing that we saw from him prior to the election in terms of, you know, amplifying these claims of fraud in the first place that, you know, his base is probably not going to come out and vote anyway. You know, I mean, we haven't seen any general election race in which that base has been motivated beyond ones in which he himself is on the ballot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this may be a way of him sort of setting precedent for, well, you know, that's why they didn't do it as opposed to, he just doesn't have this way that he likes to pretend. Well, so and I will d- say he's,
2: he's, yeah. he's already been busy endorsing a variety of candidates ahead of next year's midterms. In congressional races and gubernatorial races and primaries. Um, so why he would then not want people to come out and vote at all when he's been putting time and effort into endorsing these candidates uh, doesn't really square.
1: Right. Well, so deep privately, uh, I know reporters that I've talked to have said that members of Republican senators, Republican members of Congress have said that um, that this is why they don't want Trump to be the nominee in 2024, because it's going to be all about 2020 and not about the economy or climate change or whatever else Republicans want to run on. Uh, Are you picking that up with your reporting?
3: Yeah. And and this is, this is really the, the story of the last couple of years, particularly among uh, GOP senators. They were uh, not wild about being approached to comment on every Trump tweet. Uh, and every Trump uh, utterance uh, in, in the moment, and what they're they're hoping to do is is move on from from the Trump cult uh, and talk about uh, other issues. But every, every time that happens, they get drawn back. They get drawn back to have to speak uh, about the the big lie on the election. They get drawn back uh, to the the Trump scandals. They get drawn back to that larger question, and it just keeps. Uh, Keeps widening the divide uh, between uh, the the Trump show and reality, uh, and that's 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 the thing that either will make a candidate or sink them at this at this point point, and that's a very dangerous situation to be in. Uh,
1: so, Philip, you raised uh, the question of Virginia. I want to come back to you on that and the rest of you. Um, this Virginia governor's race coming up, Terry McAuliffe. Uh, trying to get back in the governor's seat uh, up against Glenn Youngkin, former Carlisle executive. Uh, there was a rally this week, which Youngkin did, a pro-Youngkin rally, which he did not attend, hosted by and MC'd by Steve Bannon. Here we go again with Steve Bannon. And there was a surprise telephone call from the former president. Here he is.
0: Glenn Youngkin is a
1: great gentleman. I hope Glenn gets in there and he'll do all of the things that we want a governor to do. Yeah. So, Philip, uh, how much does this help Glenn Youngkin? uh, And does he really want to be tied to Donald Trump? Well, I mean,
0: again, this goes back to to the question I was just raising. I mean, it,
1: does Donald Trump have
0: the ability to say this is my guy and then go out and vote? I mean, he can certainly say this is my guy; he does it all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, but can he actually then translate that into turnout? And again, it, we have not seen him be able to do that. We've seen the you know the GOP obviously from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty there were a lot of headwinds that the Republicans faced because Trump was at the head of the ballot and Democrats were so eager to go out and, and send messages to him. It's not clear if that's still in play. But you know, Youngkin very much wants those voters to come out and vote for him. The fact that he's you know, doing things like going on Seb Gorka's radio show uh, suggests that, that he's, he's willing to do that. But at the same time, Trump's not interested in Youngkin. Trump is interested in having Trumpism be you know, the, the mantra of the Republican Party. And so he just wants to have more Republicans win. You know, he hopes Young can win so that he can say, say that he delivered it for Youngkin. Right. So he can make these same claims again. Um, so, yeah. So Youngkin needs those people to come out and vote, particularly in Virginia, which is obviously a, a, a pretty strongly leaning blue state at this point in time. Uh, but at the same time, he doesn't want to be too mired in the Trump muck that's out there. And it's just, you know, we we don't know if anyone can actually manage that balance.
1: Right. Uh, Amanda this has become um kind of a test case for both Repu- this governor's race for both Republicans and Democrats hasn't it
2: it has and you know especially at, and at the 19th we have been tracking the issue of abortion pretty closely um as it is playing out in this race there was obviously some audio tape where yunkin was making some um pretty anti abortion Statements in a state that generally approves of Roe v. Wade. Um, We have the oral arguments looming in early December in front of the Supreme Court in another case out of Mississippi. So, we um, at the 19th are really specifically not only looking at this governor's race as a test of kind of the midterms for Democrats and Republicans, but also how the issue of abortion will be playing out in these races.
1: Well, you know. uh, before we get away from this rally, Sadiq, I want to come back to to that point about the issues in the race here for just a second. But, Sudeep, one thing that happened at this rally, which was organized by uh, talk radio host John Fredericks, is that they started out with the Pledge of Allegiance. And they pledged allegiance to a flag, American flag, which they pointed out was carried proudly in the January 6th insurrection against the United States Capitol uh it's, what message does that send
3: it's just it's so uh bizarre. one might call it weird and wrong, and that is exactly what Glenn youngkin did, which is really <laughs> the core the core of the of the issue here is that um there's this backdrop of 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 uh a, a, a literally pledging allegiance to a coup uh and and youngkin came out saying that it was it was it was weird and wrong and that the january sixth violence was was sickening and wrong. That is not what Donald Trump wants to hear. Uh, he doesn't want to hear people denouncing this, and a lot of the supporters don't want to hear it. And this is—it's uh, th- th- actually a, a turnout problem for Youngkin uh, when he does something like this. And it, it goes back to the—you know—the Georgia special election in January. Um, it, it's all about Trump and whether he can uh, get people to be angry and turn out as a result, or if he sends out these messages saying either support everything I stand for 100% and support uh, all of these so-called uh, patriots, the people who, who uh, initiated and executed the the coup, uh, or, or, or else. And so it's, it's this, this impossible position that, uh, that we're seeing. It's going to play out. And if, if Youngkin does not win, it's going to lead other candidates to have to say, OK, well, now I do support January 6th.
1: It was almost like pledging allegiance to the Confederate flag, it seemed to me. It was a really, really kind of a, a bizarre, at least. Uh, there are other governor's races going on. I have to – a quick note about what's happening up in New Jersey where Phil Murphy is running for reelection. his Republican opponent, Jack C- Uh Just <laughs> as one who's run a lot of campaigns and been involved in a lot of campaigns, I've never heard a campaign ad like this one um, – Chitterelli is a mayor of a small town in New Jersey, and as mayor of that small town, he once advocated banning, cursing, any use of obscenity in that village, making that a local crime. Uh, the Democrats, for a while at least, put up this ad uh, in the state of the Sopranos poking fun at Mr. Cittarelli. Uh, Here, appropriately bleeped for our audience, but you'll know what they're saying, is the New Jersey ad. Do you know who this guy is? No clue. No.
0: Nope.
1: Uh-uh.
3: That's Jack Cittarelli, the GOP candidate for governor. He once led an effort to ban swearing. You're shitting me. <laughs>
2: you
0: did what? No One f- way. What, in- oh, what the f***? Aw,
2: oh, that's kind of nice. Really? F*** no. This is f***ing New Jersey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, this is fucking New Jersey. Um, <laughs> uh, any of you <laughs> heard anything like that? No, no comment. <laughs> I have certainly heard things like that, not usually in no, political ads. Not in political ads, right. Uh the Democratic Party got or whoever the consultants were got so much backlash. They took the ad down. We tried to find the uh the pure version of it, if you will, un <laughs> uncensored version of it and couldn't even find it. So it's a uh, it's one I it, it'll be maybe in the uh, Smithsonian <laughs> American History Museum somewhere hidden away someday, but otherwise you won't hear it. All right, we got a lot more to talk about with our panel today. A deep Reddy from Politico, Philip Bump from The Washington Post, Amanda Becker from 19th News. Let's take a quick break and then come back and get into what's happening on the Democratic side of the aisle as well here on today's Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. The good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, they're the ones who serve us in our great retail stores, the big grocery chains across the country, our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants as well. We salute the members of the UFCW for their good work serving us, uh, staying on the front lines all during the COVID pandemic, and we thank them also for their support of the Bill Press pod.
3: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Joining Sudip Sudeep Reddy, Managing Editor for Politico, Amanda Becker, Washington Correspondent for 19th News, and Philip Bump, National Correspondent for the Washington post Uh, We talked a little bit about the Virginia governor's race and the issue, uh, Amanda, you raised the issue of abortion. Another issue that has surfaced, uh, and I'm curious about whether you see this as a big issue looming nationwide, is education, particularly schools, and particularly who decides what is taught in public schools at one of their recent debates. Uh, Former Governor Terry McAuliffe was asked about this, uh, and he made this statement.
0: I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach.
1: Parents should not be telling schools what they should teach. Um, Philip, big big issue? Is that an issue that you think will grab people and work for Youngkin? I I mean, look, it is
0: certainly something that You know, this broad issue of what kids are learning in school and the extent to which parents can influence that is a huge issue in conservative media right now. It's all over Fox News uh, that, you know, Fox News has been amplifying specifically around Virginia, you know, for for unsubtle reasons. Uh, You know, and as a parent, I certainly understand the indignation that one would feel if you're being told that you don't have the say over what your kids are learning. You know, all of that said, I think that the people who are going to be outraged by that are probably mostly people who already are the folks who are outraged about it as a proper subject, which is to say people who are watching Fox News, which is to say, you know, not necessarily McCall's the of space. I may be wrong about that. You know, there's certainly some 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 indication this has some legs. Uh, but, you know, we've seen a lot of these sorts of flashes in the pan over the years, and this has all the hallmarks of being something similar.
1: Right, Uh, a similar sort of debate is going on in this, uh, as you point out, Philip. It's it's been picked up by the conservative media, particularly. It's long been an issue in Texas as to who decides the curriculum, what's in the textbooks, and it got to this point this week. It's a little hard audio to listen to, but it's a Texas school administrator telling teachers on a conference call that they always have to present both sides of every issue including the Holocaust. Here she is.
3: Make sure that if, if, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has
2: opposing, that has other... How do you oppose the Holocaust?
1: Amanda, this gets to the point of absurdity, no?
2: Yes, so actually the lawmaker who wrote that law that they're using to justify teaching the quote-unquote other side of the Holocaust um, immediately kind of jumped in and said, you know, no, this is not what this law... you know. Uh-huh intended. Of course not. There's no other side to the Holocaust. But I think that goes to show what happens when you try to legislate this. We're seeing these laws that teachers have said across the country are going to be problematic because it's very unclear how it's actually implemented in classrooms and what it covers. And it creates a situation where teachers in some cases are worried about being fined or facing other sort of punishment if they, you know, go against these statutes that are being passed. And I think this just really shows that it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to write a law um, that allows teachers to still functionally teach their classrooms and lead their classrooms in a way that they see fit when you're legislating kind of the curriculum from the statehouse.
1: Right. So let's jump to the uh, Democratic side of the aisle here for a second. There is a narrative, I think we would all agree, among the national media today uh, on, when it comes to the Democrats, that basically, uh, and this is 11 months into the Biden pres, not quite, 10 months into the Biden presidency, uh, that it's all over for Democrats. Biden has gone down in the polls. The Democrats can't get their act together. They can't get anything done they're bound to lose a House and the Senate in 2022, and there's no way Biden or any other Democrat could get reelected in 2024. Gloom and doom. Sudip, uh, unpack that for us. <laughs> Too oh <boy>. soon. <laughs> Too soon to make that comment, or is is that the way it's going?
3: Well, look. We, historically, we know we know the trends are, are generally going to be against the incumbent party in a midterm uh, like this. Historically. Uh, we know uh, what those risks are, but historically we've never been in a situation like we are in right now uh, where you've got uh, much of an entire party uh, denying, uh, denying vaccines, uh, denying uh, all sorts of things, talking about the Holocaust uh, in this way. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre moment that we're living in. And a lot of things can happen that, that changes, uh, changes the course of these poll numbers. Look, a lot of this is tied to just generalized unhappiness with another wave of COVID. There are other factors at play with oil prices, uh, it, mounting inflation, all of that can reverse uh, fairly quickly. Uh, but it is a tight, tight margin for Democrats in the House and the Senate. And that's, uh, that's a heavy lift to defend that, but uh, it, it's, it's a little far to, to necessarily say that it's all over at this point.
1: But let me ask the outlier here, self-described outlier, Philip Bump. <laughs> Philip, Philip, I'm old enough to remember when halfway into Ronald Reagan's term, people were saying, oh, God, what a mistake for the Republicans. This guy could never get reelected, right? They're sorry they ever elected him, and, and look what happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, this is we we all have the pandemic as our recent example of how things can change very dramatically, very quickly in our lives, right? Yeah, a lot of things can happen between now and next November. Uh, you know, it's thirteen months away from this thing. That said, the signs are really not great for the Democratic Party. If if you are a betting person and the the election is tomorrow, which again it isn't you know, and you put money on Democrats holding the House, you, you might as well be just setting your money on fire. The, the, the position is bad. Like Joe Biden's approval ratings have sunk among independents primarily, uh, you know, that which is how it works. Uh, approval ratings mostly only move these days when independents move. But he's, he's taken a hit with independents, you know, that, that there there is a lot of reason to think that the position isn't good. You know, we're going to have redistricting that'll be slightly advantageous to the Republicans, maybe not as much as people might have thought. But, you know, this is in, and, and of course, midterm elections, of the first uh you know the, the first midterm election of a presidency tends to go against the president there is that sort of backlash so there are all these factors that are coming into play coming to head here and you know and democrats should be right to feel a little pessimistic again things can change but you know the odds are that things
1: won't uh and, and you mentioned covid uh, in terms of things changing i mean uh, again we've been here before we thought we were getting out of it and we sunk back in because of the delta variant but if 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 covid Uh, Amanda, if we continue to make progress on COVID, getting that behind us, and particularly if Democrats, and you've been reporting a lot about this, can get their act together on the Build Back Better bill and get that bill passed through Congress, no matter what size it is, that could turn things around for Democrats?
2: It could. I mean, I think that they need need something other than pandemic recovery to go into the midterms. They need another win, not just getting us back to a a point in American life where people feel okay about things. They need people to feel better than okay about things going into the midterms. And, you know, I think that this build back better package is really critical. Um, It's unclear how much of it they're going to be able to get done we obviously have two very high-profile uh, Senate holdouts, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And so we don't know at this point what lawmakers are going to be able to take back to their districts. And one of the things that the progressives are worried about is that, that if they scale it back too much to get to the price tag that the moderates want, is that it won't be the sort of like big-picture transformational change that people will see an immediate impact in their lives and, you know, that will make a difference going into the midterms. If it's something more incremental that's not going to be felt for a couple of years, uh, that's different than if people, you know, Mm -hmm. see that extension of the expanded child tax credit next year and, and things like that that would have sort of an immediate effect on their pocketbooks.
1: Uh, Amanda, let me stick with you just a second. Do you think progressives are being too purist in this? I mean, even if it's $2.2 trillion, right? That's still the biggest, at one time, I think, s- social action, if you will, progressive legislation ever passed in the history of the country.
2: It would be. But also, I mean, we we have a, a progressives in the Democratic Party who have never really held the line like they are right now um, in recent memory, at least since I've been covering Congress. And, you know, I think that they should only, from a strategic standpoint, scale it back more than they want to um, when they've run out of options. And we're in mid-October, they have until the end of the year. Um, Why settle for something now that's more incremental when they can spend a little bit of more time um, trying to get some of the things they want? Because, I think the the push pull is going to be, and progressives have, you know, they've been deciding among themselves right now, progressives and moderates, to get to that lower price tag. Do they want to get rid of entire programs, or do they want to scale each program back a little bit? Now, the progressive line of thinking currently is that they're not going to pit interest against one another. They're not going to pit, you know students um, at community colleges against the elderly in terms of the programs that they're looking at. So what they're proposing right now is to have this play out over a shorter period of time to get that price tag down. Um, But I actually don't think at this point in time, it is the best choice from the progressive standpoint to end negotiations and settle for a smaller package when they could hold out a little bit longer and maybe get something more.
1: Sudeep, what do you think here? Um, at one point, it almost looks like that the progressives can't take yes for an answer. And I say that as a progressive. I'm just trying to figure out what the best strategy here going forward is.
3: Uh, ultimately when they recognize the positions of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they're going to have to take yes for an answer. And I think they're actually starting to come to terms with that, that they're not going to get everything they wanted. If, if you can believe it, legislators are realizing they're not going to get everything they wanted. Uh, but it, it's like a, a, a five stages process with some of these, uh, these Democrats to go through uh, because they fought for it. This is what they truly believe in, uh, but it's just not there and they don't have the votes and, uh, and Joe Manchin has been very clear. He's not a progressive. He's not a liberal senator. And if you want to get some of this legislation, you need to get more liberals elected uh, and people who are going to be at that, uh, that, that end of, of the spectrum. And so they're, they're starting to come to terms with it. They'll probably find a way uh, to, to take yes for an answer in the end. Uh, but, uh, boy, they are certainly drawing this out and making it look like uh, it's going to be difficult
0: uh, to get there.
1: Philip, how do you assess the role or the impact of the number one progressive in the Congress, Bernie Sanders, in all of this?
0: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders' role is best understood over the long term, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders' uh, 2016 campaign really elevated a lot of these subjects of conversation in the first place. You know, there was obviously an audience that was waiting to hear it, but, you know, Sanders has had a long-term effect here. Uh, He has, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting to watch how the power dynamics in the democratic caucuses has worked because there's been so much uh, of this agitation on the house side. Well, you know, on the Senate side, the focus is mostly on Manchin and Cinema. Sanders has been pushing back and getting into scraps with, uh, with Manchin in particular uh, over some of this stuff. But, you know, I mean, I think that Sanders legacy here is that he really was at the vanguard of the, the, the way in which Democrats have moved to the left on these, particularly these progressive economic issues over the course of the past five years.
1: Yeah, and I think he's also shown, speaking of Senator Sanders, a pragmatic side that we hadn't seen before, right? Um, Knowing that he's not going to get the entire three and a half trillion dollars, still pushing for it, but recognizing that he'll get the best deal he can, um, which again, I think a side of Bernie that we hadn't hadn't seen before. Before we leave that, uh, Adam Schiff Um, made a comment this week Adam Schiff has a new book out called Midnight in Washington (laughs) I I think that references maybe the hours that uh, people like Amanda who cover Congress have had to put in many many times lately covering these issues Midnight in Washington but Adam uh, talks about um, the reality in politics today which is it's almost like a one-way street on the hill with one party trying to get something done and the other party just standing there and doing nothing. At least that's his take. I'd like to get your comments on it. Here's uh, Congressman Adam Schiff. We have a Republican Party that is now an autocratic cult around Donald Trump. It is not interested in governing. It's not interested in even maintaining the the solvency and the creditworthiness of the country. Uh, And we have to recognize that they're not interested in governing. And so we're going to govern. We're going to have to do it. And if we have to do it with our own votes, we will do that. Is that the way it is, Amanda?
2: Well, that statement would indicate that um, almost it would almost indicate that the Senate is ready to change filibuster rules. And I don't think they're quite there yet Um, when he was saying, we'll just do it with our own votes. Um, I don't think they're there yet. I certainly don't see any indication that the parties are really willing to work together on most things, most big things anyway. Um, and that's been something that's been happening for a while now, and it's just becoming more and more exacerbated. Um, I think that we could get to a point where almost nothing can get done um, with the 60-vote threshold in the Senate, and I think it'll be really interesting at that point to see if we uh, hear from any more senators who might be willing to change those filibuster rules so we could see more big pieces of legislation potentially move, uh, like the Build Back Better plan.
1: Does he describe it accurately, do you think, so
2: I do think
3: there, there is, there's been a building movement towards toward this position that we're in. You go back a, a, a decade ago to the, the Tea Party positions, and it, it did seem like a lot of the, the uh, uh, all-or-nothing approaches to, to governance. Um, I, I, I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but w- uh, we, we just recently saw uh, uh, 10 Republican senators uh, mm-hmm. Vote to to uh, at least avoid national calamity with uh, with the debt ceiling. So there's there there are still some people who are willing uh, to do the bare minimum, but not that many. And that's uh, that's that ten is going to shrink in the coming uh, yeah. years, given all the things we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, Philip, it does seem. I mean, all the negotiating back and forth for example, on the infrastructure, is among Democrats, Republicans are hardly involved in that at all, right? They're just on the sidelines. So-
0: Well. Yeah, I mean, except for the fact that they carved out all the infrastructure stuff and actually put together a bipartisan agreement, right? Which is not insignificant in something. The that, first bill, you're right, absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. you know, and I honestly, I think that was a political mistake by Biden because it meant, meant that all the stuff that the Republicans were going to fight hardest against got, got carved out into a separate thing that required, you know, mansion and cinema to, to sign on to it, you know. But mm-hmm. all, all that said, you know, I mean, I think broadly speaking, the Republican Party has, for years, to Sadeep's point, been running as the party against against you know governments right i mean not even not even for years <laughs> right. but like you know yes. that, that's that's its predicate i mean it almost almost since founding that's that's been the, the predicate of the party to some extent but usually that has meant sort of you know trying to constrain as opposed to just you know digging in your heels and so i think something has changed in, in that regard like
1: yeah some of us can remember the days when people like trent Laden and tom daschle actually or Bob Dole and um, George Mitchell might have worked together to get things done. Uh, not that way anymore, for sure. Um, hey, thank you, panel. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Uh, and what a week it's been. I think we covered the territory there. You did very, very well. Thank you. Um, won't let you go before. I always say there's something as busy as we are, as much is happening, uh, as many tweets and everything we get, there's always one story that kind of stops you in your tracks and says, oh, my God, how about that? serious or funny or off the wall. Uh, Amanda, what was your favorite story of the week? What caught your attention?
2: So I came prepared with two, Bill, because I'm oh. always unclear. Is <laughs> it allowed to be related to politics at all, or do I need of to go for Of course, it of
1: course, anything. All okay, right, well go. then,
2: if it's allowed to be related to politics, uh, Vanity Fair just yesterday published a really excellent profile of Katie Porter, and I am a sucker for a good profile that reveals things that you don't already know about somebody who you thought you already knew a lot about. So I would really recommend people go and check that out. Um, It was published yesterday and it'll be, I think in the November issue of Vanity Fair.
1: Got it. Okay. And your second item?
2: Oh, well that is so far afield from politics and um, it is, it was a story in the um, Sunday times about Erica Girardi who was on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? <laughs> but I actually covered her husband, um, Tom Girardi, back when I was in Los Angeles. Oh, He's yeah. a really well-known plaintiffs' lawyer, and is now being accused um, of kind of running a pyramid scheme, taking money from you know plane crash victims and stuff like that. So I thought that was a really excellent um, profile of her and what's going on in that situ- situation as well.
1: All right, Katie Porter and Erica Girardi, we've got it. So deep. what caught your attention?
3: You know, there's, a, there's always a story that you just can't avert your eyes from uh, each week. <laughs> yeah, that's and it. and uh, this 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 past week, it's been the Alan West story. Uh, Alan oh, West, the Tea oh. Party firebrand, yes. uh, chair, former chairman of the Texas Republican Party, and uh, of course, now running for the, the uh, Republican nomination for, for governor in Texas against Greg Abbott, uh, of course. Uh, had been campaigning against the COVID vaccine. Uh, and of course, because it just has to happen, he ends up getting COVID, getting hospitalized, tweeting from his hospital bed against the vaccine. And then in a turn that I think was a, a, a bit of a twist in this story, uh, he, he, he tweets that uh, instead of enriching the pockets of big pharma and corrupt bureaucrats and politicians, we should be advocating for the monoclonal antibody infusion therapy, which he got. And of course, it, it saves his life. Uh, without quite uh, explaining that he has chosen bigger pharma over big pharma, the the, the maker of the monoclonal antibody treatment uh, has uh, is is a multi billion uh, dollar company that's that's ten times larger uh, in revenue than than Moderna, the, the the vaccine maker, and it's just it's just bizarre. It's just you look at this and you think, how do people see this and and not recognize like the Monoclonal antibodies are lab-made proteins. What you're what you're speaking about, and those they cost two thousand dollars per dose versus twenty dollars for the vaccine, and it's just nuts. And it just shows how far down uh, we've gone in uh, down this hole of darkness that we're in. And uh, I fear that it's only going to get worse.
1: Uh, Yeah, when you're talking about Alan West, wasn't he at one time Republican congressman from Florida? Indeed, he
3: had a couple of years for as a a Tea Party legend,
1: and then moved to Texas and became uh, the Republican chair of the state of Texas. Okay, Philip Bump, there must have been uh, some story that uh, you stopped you in your tracks as well.
0: Yeah. Mine is one actually just emerged yesterday. Uh, So a reporter at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was poking around on the state's education website. And they have a site where you can look up educators and learn about their, you know, teachers (laughs) to learn about their certifications and stuff. And Uh he actually looked at the source code of the page, which is just totally standard and you do on any web page. And he found that it was sending social security numbers out. So he contacted the state and he said, hey, (laughs) FYI, you got this huge hole in your thing. And the state went. Radio silent, and then accused him of being a hacker. And so there oh. was this big Jeremiah from the governor yesterday, Governor Parson, who was just saying that you know this is a hacker, and that you know it's going to cost the state fifty million dollars, and they were trying to sell headlines. And it's just like for anyone who knows anything like about <laughs> the web. Saying that, you know, reading a social security number from the source code is hacking is, you know, it, it's, oh, it's like God. saying that, you know, by, by putting gas in your car, you're a mechanic. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. <laughs> and I mean, to the point where it's like maybe there's some other aspect of the story, which there well, may maybe because to make this allegation is just so far departed from reality that it's just mm.
1: it's, it, pretty, pretty astonishing. Well, has the state finally admitted that they were wrong and shut it down or anything? No.
0: Well, yeah, Bill, you may be new to politics, so no, they actually have not yet admitted <laughs> uh, that they messed up here. So, you know, is that yeah. coming, who knows, but you no, know, it's 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 pretty hectic right now. Uh
1: well, my favorite story of the week is a a note of pity. A note of pity for Queen Elizabeth II. God love her. She is 95 years old, and one of the things that has kept her going all these years, we've learned, is that she enjoys, uh, and she's not the only one, uh, a martini, not just an occasional martini. She has one martini every evening, uh, and the doctors, the Royal Palace confirmed this week that her doctors have told us she has to give up her martini because her... uh, big jubilee celebration is coming up in June. Uh, They want to be sure that she's in good health for that. So they've advised her to give up her martini. I think this is effing outrageous. I mean, at 95, if she's been drinking a martini all these years and she's made it this long, give her her martini. God damn. I can't believe it. How, How cruel can it be? See? Uh, aren't you glad you're not born of a prince or a princess, right? Working Monarchy, man. Oh. <laughs> mm. Greater love than this no man hath than to give up their daily martini. So uh, we ought to start a movement, <laughs> right? A protest movement to bring the queen back martini hey that's a great roundtable here guys thank you so much philip bump great to have you with us thanks hope to get you back again soon sadeep Reddy from politico thank you sadeep and amanda becker always good to have you with us as well and it's good to have all of you listening and part of the roundtable thank you so much uh a little program note next tuesday our next podcast we're going to be talking with former new jersey governor christine todd whitman who uh, made a lot of news this week herself when she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that the best thing that Republicans can do to get this country back together is for Republicans to vote for Democrats. Uh, We'll talk to Governor uh, Whitman about that next Tuesday on the podcast. Meanwhile, be strong, be safe, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you again on Tuesday with Christine Todd Whitman. Thank you all.